tonight, the first fine for COVID partiers. What breaking the new rules is costing them. Plus, some reassuring news for Penticton residents, but thousands aren't out of the woods yet. And it's a lot of fun. We're having a good time. One day, day one of the PNE, everything you'd expect, all from the comfort of your car. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. It's the reassuring news thousands of residents in Penticton have been waiting to hear. The Christie Mountain fire near the city does not appear to be threatening their homes. Aaron MacArthur has been monitoring the wildfire and joins us now live. Aaron, despite the good news, I understand there are still concerns about the firefight. Yeah, Colleen, as we have seen all week, the fire is always unpredictable, like the weather is unpredictable. Those two factors always cause for concern. The helicopters haven't stopped. For days, constantly dipping in Skaha Lake, working the fire above Penticton. Despite the major windstorm Friday, the Christie Mountain fire stayed fairly static. Officials mapping it a little more than 20 square kilometers. The combination of our aviation fleet and the ground crews has really um, slowed down the fire growth, so that's been really good. Um, the other thing that I think has been in our favor is that it's actually the fire was running into the old Garnet fire from 94, so that has taken a bit of the steam out or the fuels out. While there are signs of firefighting equipment staged in some of the highest risk neighborhoods, much of it isn't needed right now. Hundreds of firefighters have been sent home. Penticton's fire chief, confident he won't have to call them back. We feel very confident that the fire is no longer threatening structures adjacent to the fire in the, in the city of Penticton. However, we are still working uh, on behalf of the regional district for structure protection, and we'll continue to do that until there's no longer a threat to those structures. Fingers crossed, and uh, we're out of here. 319 homes are still on evacuation order. Some 3,700 more are still on alert. And while it seems like the risk has moved away from these homes, fire crews reluctant to lift any restrictions. Once the cold front passes, the winds shift 180 and start going back the other direction. So now we're getting winds pushing on the fire that we haven't seen yet. So for us, it's really important that we gain and establish control with the winds now pushing the other direction before we make any decisions. It could be weeks before crews get a handle on this fire. A change in wind direction Saturday might push it into areas with more combustible material. But for now, everyone in Penticton breathing a big sigh of relief. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. And Aaron, what's the forecast for the area? Well, that might be some more good news that we keep talking about here. The forecasted high over the next two days, somewhere in the mid-20s, which is cooler than it's been. Light winds out of the north, which is also favorable. One of the key factors of this forecast is overnight lows into the low teens. And that should really help crews get a better handle on this fire. Colleen? All right, Aaron. Thank you. Holy, holy.
parked today about four kilometers southeast of Merritt next to Highway 5, an alarming sight for motorists on the highway. The Fox Farm Road wildfire is said to cover about one hectare and appears to be smoldering on the ground. Firefighters in the air and on the ground are working to put it out. No buildings are threatened and the cause isn't known yet. The largest wildfire in B.C. remains the Doctor Creek Fire in the East Kootenay. It covers about 3,000 hectares. The B.C. Wildfire Service says around 70 crew members are working on the blaze. People living in 10 properties have been evacuated. As well, an incident management team has arrived and is working at the incident level. We have five aircraft responding as well as structural protection deployed as required. There have been 551 wildfires reported this season. There are currently 73 active fires in B.C. Hours after the province promised fines for COVID-19 scoff laws, it appears Victoria police may have been the first to enforce the new rules. Officers busted a pandemic party inside this Fort Street condo last night, slapping the host with a $2,300 fine for violating provincial health orders. Victoria police say they warned the residents of the unit at 7 p.m. about a ban on large gatherings. At 10.30, they asked the host to break it up, and he apparently agreed to. But police stuck around, and so did the partiers. It's believed up to 60 people, mostly youth, attended. About 30 were inside the one-bedroom suite when police finally cleared it out. We were told that it was going to be a small gathering, uh, that the host would be in compliance with, with all of the, the guidelines set out by the provincial health officer. Unfortunately, at about 10.30 at night, we got called back to that suite uh, for a report of a noise, noise complaint and disturbance for a, a loud party. I think he deserved it. He went against the rules, the regulations, and it isn't sensible in terms of a, a, an epidemic. Despite a plea from police for Canuck fans to celebrate the team's playoff victory at a safe distance, hundreds gathered at the corner of Scott Road and 72nd on the Surrey Delta border. A few people were wearing masks and not much social distancing. No word if any fines were handed out here. The B.C. Banquet Hall Association is now calling on the provincial government to shut them down. Last week, members of the association showed how they were following all the rules and protocols as set out by health officials to stop the spread of COVID-19. But many say customers and patrons are pressuring them to bend the rules, adding they end up being, quote, the bad guys for not allowing clients who book the venues to party how they want to. And in some cases, clients have refused to pay for the venue after the event. The association will hold a news conference with their plea on Monday. Another Canadian grocery store chain is making masks mandatory for its customers. Loblaw-owned No Frills and Real Canadian Superstore will both require face coverings at their locations starting next Saturday. TNT Supermarket, also owned by Loblaw, made masks mandatory at all of its stores back in May. A staff member at MSA Manor in Abbotsford has tested positive for COVID-19. The Fraser Health Authority says a rapid response team is on site at the long-term care home and residents and families are being consulted. That staffer is now self-isolating at home. Enhanced protocol measures have been put in place and contact tracing has begun. 
Healthcare heroes have been celebrated during the pandemic, but a new survey shows many people are concerned about coming into contact with those workers. The UBC poll suggests one in three people are avoiding those in the health profession while in public, believing they're more likely to have come in contact with the virus. Researchers say the study is believed to be the first on the stigmatization of healthcare workers during the pandemic. UBC says previous research has shown COVID-19 is only slightly more prevalent among healthcare workers than the general population. Vancouver Coastal Health has opened a COVID-19 testing site in North Vancouver. The site in the parking lot of Centennial Theatre on Lonsdale Avenue with access from 23rd Street. People do not need a referral or appointment and will be seen on a first-come, first-served basis. Tests will be conducted for those with COVID-19 symptoms. Surrey's new Municipal Police Department is supposed to start patrolling in spring, but will there be enough men and women on the force by then? As Julia Foy reports, a new survey suggests the answer is no. Will they or won't they consider leaving the RCMP and joining the new Surrey Police Force? That was the question Surrey RCMP members were asked in a July survey by the National Police Federation. The results? Only 14% said they would make the switch. Well, I was just surprised that they were as high. I didn't expect that many would patch over. Really, at this point, no one even knows what they're getting paid, what the incentive is going to be, what the plan is, really who's even leading it, and if it's even going to be around in two years. Mayor Doug McCallum previously predicted up to 60% of RCMP members would make the move. Now he says he's not worried about the survey's low percentage, saying that would provide a good balance and rich opportunities for municipal police and RCMP from other jurisdictions, not only in B.C., but across Canada, to join an exciting new urban police service. The man who wrote the police transition report sees it another way. It's early. Uh, the police board has just been appointed. There is no police chief. There is no collective agreement. Opal also says it may be a tough sell for some RCMP members. You know, the RCMP has got a long tradition, a long storied history. And there's no doubt that many of the members who have joined have uh, joined for that reason. And they're happy at what they're doing. When we asked Surrey residents for their opinion, it was clear. The majority would prefer to stay as RCMP in Surrey. Yeah, I work for the school district and we have strong relationships with all our liaison officers. We'll lose that and uh, that would be devastating. Yeah, they should just keep the RCMP in Surrey. The next Surrey Police Board meeting is on September 15th and hiring a new chief is their main goal. The new police force is set to launch in April of next year. Julia Foy, Global News. A five-year-old Chilliwack boy killed by a falling tree is being remembered as a goofy, fun-loving kid. Mallory Manley has identified her son Weston as the child struck when a tree fell on a hiking group on the Kingfisher Trail in Yarrow on Tuesday. He succumbed to his injuries at the scene. Manley says Weston was the kindest, sweetest kid who found joy in everything and was an amazing big brother to his younger sister. RCMP and the coroner are investigating the death. Police are investigating a stabbing at a homeless camp in downtown Victoria. Shortly after 1.30 this morning, officers noticed a man in medical distress near a large homeless camp at Centennial Square outside Victoria City Hall. 
Police learned the man had been stabbed. Businesses are blaming increased crime on the homeless camp. Victoria's mayor says she will be looking at kicking out the campers when council returns in September. The stabbing victim remains in hospital and is expected to survive. No arrests have been made. Victoria police are warning the public after trip wires were found in Cecilia Ravine Park on Thursday. The lines were about one to two feet off the ground, set across a staircase and secured to railings on either side. They also found trip wires at the same height between two trees, leading to the entrance of the popular Galloping Goose Trail. Anyone with information is asked to contact Victoria Police. And six knives and an uncapped syringe were discovered near a playground in Victoria's Central Park when officers responded to Crystal Pool to a man uh, acting erratically last night. He, uh, he was gone when the police arrived, but police say as many as 30 children were playing in the park when the needle and the knives were discovered. Now, normally tens of thousands of people would be flocking to the PNE on this, the start of the annual fair. But as you well know, COVID-19 means that's not possible. This year's PNE is a drive-through experience. And while a semblance of the fair has been salvaged, as Nadia Stewart reports, its future is anything but secure. In its 110 years, this is a first for the PNE. It's going to be totally different, but uh, I think everyone that comes down to share it are going to know that we're sharing a moment in history together. While most of Canada's annual fairs opted to skip this summer, the PNE decided to forge ahead, inviting visitors to reserve their spot in this 40-minute drive-through experience, complete with live animals, super dogs, entertainment, and food. On April 18th, when we heard the news that there was not going to be any mass gatherings um, and events like the PE were not going to be able to happen this year, it was devastating for the team. There's no question about that. PE CEO Shelley Frost says financially, Canada's fairs aren't faring so well. When I think of the 4,000 jobs that we usually have, the very important first jobs and, and jobs for new Canadians and low barrier to entry jobs, the 200 million economic impact that we have every year, and just the importance of this institution to people in BC, it's, it's incredibly important to keep it alive, even if it's in a bit of a different way. The city of Vancouver owns the PNE, but the fair operates as a nonprofit without any government funding. Still, municipal governments do not qualify for the Canadian Emergency Wage Subsidy. And as CUPE, the union representing the PNE's 4,000 workers, points out, without this assistance and revenue losses due to COVID-19, the long-term survival of the PNE is threatened. It's why they're grateful for every single family passing through. It's a lot of fun. We're having a good time. It's been a great time. Thank Bye. you. Yeah. What made you want to come down? Oh, just to experience something different. And if you're a loyal fairgoer, and there's thousands of you, we want you to come down and share this with us. Helping to keep a beloved BC tradition alive, one vehicle at a time. Nadia Stork, Global News. Nasty. A global viewer in the Peace Region sent in this footage of a severe storm in Fort St. John last night. Strong winds ripped roofs, damaged fences, and caused power outages. The city says that a local park was also heavily damaged. A severe thunderstorm warning had been issued, and Environment Canada is looking into whether a low-level tornado may have touched down. Meteorologist Yvonne Shell will have more on it coming up. Well, on the far 
far west coast, Tofino is struggling to deal with the unforeseen challenges of a tourist season like no other. Overcrowding and piles of garbage have forced the resort community to adopt a zero-tolerance policy on bad behavior. Kristen Robinson has the story. Tofino's unblemished beaches normally left untouched by tourists, but not this year. It is disrespectful. What we're not used to is this volume of trash. COVID-19 bringing a new wave of visitors. It's really disturbing to see the way some people are choosing to uh, leave behind the evidence. Smoldering beach fires, cigarette butts and piles of garbage, all documented on social media when Tofino is already seeing about 30% more properly discarded trash. In really unfortunate situations, things that just ought not to ever be found on the beach, including human waste. When phase three was announced, Tofino saw a flood of tourists. Not all of them could find a place to stay, and the open season on bad behavior began. We've never seen the parking situation the way it is alongside the highway and at our beach parking lots. And then when nature calls, unfortunately, they make a a choice that, that means using the outdoors. And it's just not acceptable. Resort owner Chris Lefebvre recently wrote the district asking for immediate action on the intense overcrowding he claims is causing the potential for COVID exposure and expansion. We know we are under-resourced this summer for the kind of volumes that we're seeing. Tofino's two bylaw officers now slapping scoff laws with $200 tickets for illegal camping. Unfortunately, you just come across some folks who, who choose not to follow the rules and there needs to be consequences. As the community takes out the trash on the pristine sand scarred by a few, it's urging visitors to make reservations and pack out what they pack in. Kristen Robinson, Global News. A woman has been killed by a bear in a remote region of northern Saskatchewan. The 44-year-old was mauled in an area about 150 kilometres north of Buffalo Narrows on Thursday. She was severely injured and was pronounced dead after being flown to hospital. It's the first fatal bear attack in the province since 1983. The older black bear was killed at the scene. A necropsy will be conducted. We'll figure out whether the you know, there was health reasons or environmental reasons why this bear acted in, in the manner it is. Like, attacks like these are not common. This is not a typical black bear behavior. The victim was camping with a man and two young children who were not hurt. Historic and horrifying wildfires are ripping across California with no end in sight. The wildfire season is so bad in California, the state is requesting help from Canada and Australia. And the combination of record-breaking heat and lightning storms in the forecast spell more disaster. Tonight, the battle against an outbreak of catastrophic flames. Crews spread paper thin across the state are trying to contain more than 500 fires, including two of the largest in state history. So far, nearly a million acres have burned, an area larger than the state of Rhode Island. In Northern California, the flames are ripping through wine country, devouring homes and forcing the evacuations of thousands. At least five people have died. Smoke from the fires adding to the dire situation, making the air quality unhealthy. Oh, no, no, no. Krista Hafner lost most of her livestock, including her horses and goats, as the flames swept through her parents' ranch. I've lost so much. If I stop to think about it too long, it overwhelms me. 
and I try not to to focus on it too much. Uh, today was a very hard day. Residents doing everything they can to hold on to their homes. Uh, we stopped the fire around the house over there. We stopped the fire around the house over there. I'm just trying to, you know, save this neighborhood we have. But overnight, it was the first responders who needed rescuing. All right, guys, I'm going to get down here, okay? All right. Harrowing video shows a pair of Marin County firefighters airlifted to safety after getting trapped inside the firestorm. You got posted it, guys? Yeah. Thank you for coming. They've been out here on 48-hour to 72-hour straight shifts fighting this fire. Cal Fire spokesperson Scott McLean says resources being brought in from out of state are helping, but right now his concern are those on the ground. Are you worried about the firefighters that are on the front lines doing all they can to battle against this? Yes, I am concerned, and that's statewide. You can see how tired folks are. You can see that they're spread thin, but they're doing the job. Their heart and soul is into it. Life safety is their primary goal. Russian dissident Alexei Navalny, who was in a coma after a suspected poisoning, has arrived in Berlin on a special flight for treatment by specialists. He's reportedly in stable condition, but we're learning it may be too late for conclusive toxicology tests. The Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny is reportedly in a stable, safe condition, currently under the care of German doctors. He arrived there earlier today on a medical evacuation flight that was organized by a German NGO. Uh, that NGO issuing a very happy statement this morning declaring that their humanitarian mission is now complete. Now, one of the things that we're really hoping to learn about in the coming days is a possible toxicology exam that might be able to conclusively identify whether or not, as suspected, a poison was used to put Mr. Navalny in such a critical state, but also maybe to identify what kind of substance was used to do this. Now, there are very little hopes for that. It has been three days now since the poisoning. It's possible that it's dissipated from his system. Mr. Navalny has been active in opposition politics for about 10 years now. He's actually somewhat of an investigative journalist. And he does a lot of really well-researched, in-depth investigations into official corruption in Russia from the top on down. And suffice it to say, he's made a lot of enemies doing that. But I think that Mr. Navalny's spokesperson put it best on Thursday, immediately after the poisoning, that regardless of who, who did it, Mr. Putin is responsible. Whether or not he gave the order himself personally, it is ultimately on him. For NBC News, I'm Matthew Bodner in Moscow. In Health Matters, scientists are studying three pop concerts in Germany today to investigate the risks of staging such indoor mass events during the pandemic. A German singer-songwriter and his band agreed to perform all three successive gigs in Leipzig. Researchers say the study called Restart 19 ran through three different scenarios. The first aims to simulate an event before the pandemic. The second had greater hygiene measures and some physical distancing. And the third had half the numbers in the crowd and people standing one and a half meters apart. Participants are being tested for COVID-19 and given face masks as well as tracking devices to measure their distancing. Researchers are using fluorescent disinfectants to track what surfaces people touch the most and monitoring particles exhaled and floating in the air. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. 
Taylor Swift's act of kindness that's changing the life of a British immigrant. We're going to have that for you right after the forecast. But first, have a look at this. This is how kangaroos are dealing with whiteout conditions in southeast Australia as Antarctic winds trigger a rare snowfall. Several roadways had been closed, but the snow couldn't stop people from spending time outdoors. Just over a meter of snow has fallen on the Alpine region, and the cold weather is likely to stick around for a few days. It is winter in Australia, after all, and hot temperatures in Texas are putting squirrels in an awkward position. People in Austin are capturing squirrels laying spread eagle. There's, there's actually a word for it. It's called spluting. Several photos have been posted to social media. Wildlife experts say if you see a squirrel in this position, spluting, don't worry, it's just trying to cool off. And they say squirrels also take a similar position in the winter to try to warm themselves up. Spluting, Yvonne. And the kangaroos to the squirrels. Right. Possible tornadoes. <laughs> Goodness, so much Lots going on. Weather. Yeah. I wanted to put this uh, just a quick look at last night. A severe th- storm rolled through the BC Peace re- region last night with over 20,000 lightning strikes. It's ex- actually extremely rare for a storm to produce a tornado in the BC Peace, but conditions were favorable and possible that a very weak tornado could have touched down in Fort St. John. Environment Canada is still reviewing evidence to confirm more details about the storm and whether the storm could be rated as an EF0 or an EF1, the lowest rating for a tornado. And that video was captured by Kyla. So we'll give you an update as soon as we find out more information. And we change gears to the weather picture. Very different here along the south coast today. We've had plenty of sunshine and ice break. We had a significant amount of rain for both Thursday, Friday. A bit more cloud cover is on the way for the latter half of the weekend. I'll have more in just a moment. Temperatures are sitting at 19 degrees. We've got a northwesterly wind at 15 kilometers per hour. Highs today, though, it warmed up in the interior with trail touching up to 30 degrees. The tops at Okanagan, 27 degrees. The southern half of the Okanagan, closer to 30. And the central interior today, up to 18 degrees. One area across the province. We're still tracking some showers this evening, overnight, and through the day will be along the north coast. So continuing to see some wet weather. It'll shift to the northern half of the province. Inland tomorrow could see a bit of instability. And most areas for the central and southern interior will start to see an increase in cloud cover through the day for tomorrow, but still remaining dry for all areas across the south coast. And the island will be included within that. Overnight tonight, we do have some fog developing. Temperatures will dip down to 13 degrees. Tomorrow morning, mainly cloudy. We'll continue to see that weather picture for the day, and it'll be a touch cooler with temperatures up up to 19 degrees. We continue to keep a close eye on the wind forecast, especially for the interior. It'll shift tomorrow. The trend looks to be northerly for most areas, and there could be a range anywhere between 10 and potentially up to 20 kilometer per hour winds. Fire danger rating for the southeastern corners rated at high to extreme. Most of the southern half underneath moderate, and with the significant amount of rain that we've been seeing, an ice break to very low and low along the northern half of the province and for coastal areas for the southern half. Now, the north tomorrow will still see that shower activity. It's inland with that instability. Areas near Smithers could see the risk of a thunderstorm. It's dry for the piece tomorrow, just towards the northern half, though, for Fort Nelson. A few isolated showers. A nice bright start across the central interior, but it is an increase in cloud cover for the afternoon and evening. Still remaining dry, and then all areas across the southern half will also see more cloud cover through the day, especially for areas near the tops and Kamloops tomorrow, getting up to 25 degrees. Still another warm one for Castlegar into the low 30s. Whistler dry 
with cloud cover, a touch cooler with temperatures sitting at 17 degrees. And along the south coast, weather picture a bit uh, different tomorrow. We'll see more cloud cover still remaining dry. Highs up to 19 degrees, and then we're back into some sunshine as we get in towards next week. It'll be quite pleasant and so far remaining dry for a five-day forecast. Colleen? Sounds good. Thanks, Yvonne. A teenager in the UK is off to study math at Warwick University, and Taylor Swift is footing a good chunk of the bill. Vittoria Murillo is an 18-year-old student living in the UK after migrating from Portugal four years ago. She says she learned how to speak English, get this, from watching Netflix and aced her advanced math courses, earning a conditional offer to study at the prestigious school. The problem was money as she's not eligible for loans or grants. Swift saw a GoFundMe page and donated the equivalent of nearly $40,000 to the campaign. That's lovely. That's a good story. That's just lovely. <laughs> Talented, beautiful, wealthy, generous. Very She's nice. the pack. I was going to shake it off, but I thought that. Ah, <laughs> oh, nice. I had, to Google, I, I had to Google her songs. I saw it coming up. Yes, <laughs> of course. Uh, what do you got coming up, Perry? Well, you might uh, guess uh, that we might talk about the Canucks. Uh, man, they looked so impressive uh, last night. Putting away uh, the Stanley Cup champs uh, takes something, and the Canucks oh, yeah. played their best game, I think, of the playoffs, and uh, pretty exciting to think what could come. So we'll take a look back and a look ahead to Vegas uh, when we come back in sport. Some rare good news from the World Health Organization, which says the pandemic could be over in less than two years if there is international cooperation. Still, that's a long ways from now, but many airlines have resumed destination flights around the world. Some, including Air Canada, have resumed booking the middle seats on planes. But is it safe to get back on a commercial plane again? Global Zalia Adam looks into that. With lockdowns being lifted around the world, many countries are beginning to ease border restrictions to allow for international tourism during the coronavirus pandemic. So far, the results, especially for tropical destinations, have not been great. The U.S. Virgin Islands welcomed tourists back to its shores in June, but they were forced to reinstate a stay-at-home order and close up shop after COVID-19 cases doubled in July. That isn't stopping airlines from offering flights for leisure travel during the pandemic. So is it safe to travel by air yet? Let's start with the plane itself. The idea of being crammed together with strangers in a small enclosed space for hours may seem like a bad idea during a pandemic, especially since the virus is primarily transmitted during prolonged personal contact with an infected person through respiratory droplets from them coughing, sneezing, or talking. Even though masks are required on board, some airlines have now relaxed physical distancing rules and are booking flights to full capacity again. But the risk of contracting the coronavirus on board isn't as high as you think. The airplane ride itself is probably the lowest risk event in all of this in that sense. So if people are wearing a mask, uh, airplanes have HEPA filters, they're, they're, the air is constantly streamed appropriately. That doesn't mean there's zero chance of catching COVID-19 on a plane. According to a research paper by MIT, the chances of catching coronavirus from a passenger on a full flight when all the coach seats are filled is about 1 in 4,300. Those odds drop to 1 in 7,700 when all the middle seats on board are left empty. Back in July, 17 international flights and 14 domestic flights were flagged by the Canadian government for possible exposure to the virus. And even though to date there have been no confirmed cases of passenger-to-passenger transmission of COVID-19 on commercial flights, there have been reports of probable transmission. According to many health experts, it's everything that comes before and after the actual flight that poses the real threat. 
And that starts with how you get to the airport in the first place. Are you driving yourself, or are you taking a taxi or rideshare? What are the chances the driver is infected? How's the airflow in the car? Is the driver wearing a mask? Is it a good enough mask? And then if I'm walking through the airport, how many people am I going to be within three feet of, right? And again, what's their mask like? How does it compare to my mask? So there's just there's this long list of uncertainties. So whether or not you decide to get on a plane and get away during the coronavirus pandemic, it's important to ask yourself, is it worth it? All right, just ahead of Barry in sports, what happens when a foul ball beans a baseball fan sitting in the stands? But no crying foul from this guy. The foul ball flies into the stands during Thursday night's Arizona Diamondbacks-Oakland A game. The fan is bonked squarely on the noggin. He bounces right back, though, and appears to enjoy the rest of the game, looking no worse for wear, even though he did get the... Stuffing knocked out of him. Not literally. Could have been worse. He could have been drinking a beer and lost that. But that would have been a shame. So, yes. Crying shame. And a double whammy. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to talk uh, another game where fan- live fans aren't allowed, but there's a lot of fans watching around here. How can you not be impressed with the uh, Canucks? Not only did they knock off the defending Stanley Cup champs in six games, but they did it with conviction. The Blues thought that their experience and physical play would wear down the young Canucks, but Vancouver took the deciding game by the throat early and never let go. And now they roll the dice versus Vegas in the conference semifinals starting tomorrow night. There will be a new Stanley Cup champion in 2020. The Vancouver Canucks have knocked off the St. Louis Blues. We all knew the Canucks had the potential to one day become a contender, but that day has arrived. And if it seems ahead of schedule to us, that is not the case with the players, who popped into the bubble with a confidence and swagger that they are ready to make a run right now. You know, that will to win, that hunger to win, I saw it from day one when I came in. And, um, you know, we're kind of seeing seeing what we all in the room knew already. Um, You know, but we're seeing it now in the playoff. You know, on the ice, everybody is battling and... uh, you know, working their behind off, and and it's, uh, it's it's just so much fun to play hockey right now, and especially like when you're winning, and when you're winning series like this is uh, you know it's pure uh, pure joy, and like you said too, we still got a we still got a long ways to go before anybody's satisfied. The Canucks scored ten goals in their last two wins over the Blues. Eight of those ten goals came from guys you don't expect to score a lot, but that's the kind of contributions you need to win come playoff time. You know, to be a t- beat a team like St. Louis, you're not going to do it with one or two guys. You're going to do it with a whole team effort, and we've preached that from day one. This team is, I've said it from the beginning, is a special and dangerous team. And, um, you know, we have a lot of heart and a lot of will uh, in the locker room, and it makes for, for great hockey. And when we stick to our game, um, you know, we, we are a dangerous team. And, and um, you know, we did that this series. We did it the first series, and now we got to look to do it again. No time to celebrate round one. Canucks get right into their series with Vegas tomorrow night and play every second day with the exception of back-to-backs for games five and six if it gets that far. Vegas has traditionally had the Canucks number in their brief existence, but their head coach Pete DeBoer says he sees a much different Canucks team in the bubble than he saw before the season paused back in March. I've got a heightened awareness of defending and, and being harder to play against defensively. 
and when you add some of the skill and speed and, and some of the offense that they're capable of generating, including their special teams, uh, you know, I think that's, that's made them a real dangerous team. You know, we got a chance over the break to really think about our game as a staff. We got a chance to talk to our team for a while before we came here about where we needed to improve, but we still wanted to be effective in areas that we felt were strong uh, and give the team a lot of credit. They've, they've bought in, they've been committed to that part of the rink. And, uh, you know, to win in the playoffs, if you're not tight defensively, if you can't play defensively, you can't win. All right, round two in the West now underway. Colorado and Dallas game one. Dallas got an early goal from Tyler Sagan, but just a minute later, the Avalanche superstar Nathan McKinnon whips it in. His 14th point now leads the scoring race, one more than the Canucks' Elias Pettersson. But the Stars get it right back. The former Kelowna Rocket, the veteran Blake Como with the point shot, deflects off an Avalanche stick and in. 2-1 Stars, and then later in the first, Jamie Benn. To Alexander Radulov, Deeks five hole, his second assist of the period for Ben. Dallas now leads 4-2 in the second. Nick Nurse has been named the NBA's coach of the year. He led the Raptors to their best ever win percentage in franchise history this year, despite playing most of the season with multiple key players out with injuries at different times. Nurse was presented the Red Auerbach Trophy by two of his key players today, Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet. Nurse does have a lot of talent to work with, but he demands defense from his group, and they play beautiful team basketball. He's also a brilliant strategist, especially when it comes to adjustments in the playoffs, and his Raptors are right there to repeat as NBA champions. NBA playoffs today, the team that... uh, the Raptors beat in the Eastern Conference Finals last year. The Milwaukee Bucks taking on Orlando in Game 3. After that Orlando win in Game 1, the Bucks have found their groove. Giannis with the dunk there. He had 35. Big Brook Lopez hits the 3 as Milwaukee rolls past Orlando. 121-107. Bucks now lead the series. Two games to one. And Heat and Pacers. Miami looking to go up 3-0. Fourth quarter, Kelly Olynyk, the pride of Kamloops. It's his only bucket of the game. But he did have nine big rebounds in just 14 minutes off the bench. Jimmy Butler led the way for the Heat, as he often does. 27 points. Miami with a 3-0 stranglehold after a 124-115 win over the Pacers. Third round of the Northern Trust from Boston. First tournament of three in the FedEx Cup playoffs. Dustin Johnson coming off that 11-under 60 yesterday with a spectacular approach at the long par 4 12th from 206 yards, that's with a six iron. Ridiculous. Docks it to within a foot. Kick in birdie to get to 20 under and a two-shot lead. And then at 18 for Eagle from 40 feet. This is a good way to end the round. The Eagle lands for Johnson. Seven under 64, 22 under, leads by five. Mackenzie Hughes, top Canadian at 11 under, tied for 15th. Adam Hadwin, Nick Taylor both missed the cut yesterday. Tiger Woods is third last at one under. For most people, bowling is a fun night out with friends or family that may or may not include a few beers between throws. But for 29-year-old Jordan Jung of Burnaby, bowling is his profession. 14. 14 perfect games in league or tournament play. Jordan Jung is no stranger to throwing 300 games. For a professional bowler, being near or close to perfect every time you pick up a bowling ball is a must. Jordan's one of Canada's top bowlers, and he's just a few strikes away from making his mark on the world stage. Winning a PBA regional 
right? It was one of the things I, I worked for. Uh, it was the, like, the top goal, right? Where all these other tournaments were like sort of stepping stones to the PBA regional and the national tour. So it was, it felt really good. That good feeling is more than an acquired skill going beyond the daily habit of having a bowling ball on the palm of your hand. The little baby who's barely bigger than a bowling pin is Jordan in his dad's arms. Mom and dad were both competitive bowlers who passed on their love of the game to the Jung boys, beginning with Jordan's older brother, Jamie. Our father died in uh, 2009, so he was 18 at the time. So he just finished junior Team Canada. And with our dad passing, it was just a time period where I had to help him. So we got bowling. I was still bowling a bit, so we would travel. Calgary, Montreal, Seattle. Got him going, we got him a sponsorship deal because he bowled well in the States in some amateur tour events. So they approached him and said, we're gonna sponsor you. So he did it all himself after 18. Jordan, earlier years, physically one of the best physical games in Western Canada, without a doubt. Uh, mentally, wasn't always the best, but in the last few years, bowling more, competing at a higher level, definitely strengthened that part of his game. The biggest challenge for Jordan right now is lane time against the world's best. All the PBA big money events are held south of the border, and Jordan hasn't been in the state since earlier this year when he scored his big victory. He's been keeping busy working in the pro shop he co-owns, as well as coaching up-and-coming bowlers, but nothing beats competing. He's lots of effortless power. Uh, he's the best bowler in British Columbia by far, one of the best in Canada. He can do it all. Just needs a chance to keep on going. This is my home. There you go. If you have any spare time, bowling. It, one of the sweetest <laughs> feelings in the world is that is that feeling a of a strike. I know. And those guys, they throw it with uh, the they, you know, they they curb it in there. Oh yeah. We just hope it doesn't go in the gutter. Exactly. Very, very okay. We all know how Yvonne loves pandas. Well, it's my get, story. Yeah, you get two for the price of one this time. A giant panda has given birth at Smithsonian's National Zoo, and everyone was on panda watch. At 22 years of age, the chances of giant panda Mei Shang giving birth to a cub were considered slim, but she beat the odds at 6.35 Eastern Time on Friday evening. Mei Shang instinctively picked up her cub immediately and began cradling and taking care of it. Officials at the National Zoo in Washington say they heard the cub vocalize and continued to observe the two pandas on a panda cam. Mei Shang, the oldest giant panda in the U.S., was artificially inseminated in March. In a few days, keepers will be able to retrieve the cub for a neonatal exam. But the baby panda's gender won't be determined until a later date, leaving those following this developing story with something more to look forward to. Meanwhile, the panda house at the zoo is closed to let Mei Shang and her cub enjoy some peace and quiet. Skyler Henry, CBS News, Washington. And Barry, you just mentioned that baby pandas are tiny when they're born. <laughs> That's right. I couldn't. I couldn't actually see it. But no, I know none, none of us could. They're they're tiny. Like a wee little bear. Well, it's a private moment between yes. mother and baby. We're getting on the panda cam right after. <laughs> and also, for the record, I didn't know to wear black and white Vaughn for panda, panda watch. <laughs> It's just instinctual for you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Jordan is here at 11. Have a great night.